so you know what I'm, you know I'm going through right now. Um, but uh, it's going to be good, though. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Life Church, and uh, really glad that you're uh, here this morning. And if this is your first time, a special welcome to you as well. Um, really excited to talk about the topic of evangelism uh, today. And I know for some of us, especially if you grew up in church, it's one of those things where you know, you just really know you were never good at it. <laughs> Anybody ever feel that way? Like, I just, I'm not really good at it. Anybody? Okay. Yeah, you're just like, I'm never really good. I want to get better, but like, I don't. And for those of us who didn't grow up in church, like evangelism, for you probably was this kind of like, this like, let me illustrate it with this story, right? Because I feel like uh, those of us who hear the word evangelism oftentimes think about situations like this one. Now, this story has nothing to do with evangelism, but it's an illustration for how some of us perceive what evangelism is like. Uh, in 1997, I was 17. I just graduated uh, high school, and I needed to make money for university. So I, uh, you know, what better job to make money than to be a salesman, right? And what better thing to sell than to sell a vacuum cleaner, right? So I was 17 years old, and I decided, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and so my first appointment was with um, my economics teacher, Ms. McLeod. And Ms. McLeod, was, she was a fantastic educator, but she wasn't known to be passion, compassionate towards her students. But I was like, I was a really good student. I, w- I was, uh, you know, uh, I, I used to uh, captain my debate club. I graduated first in my class, so I'm thinking, easy sell. I mean, she's got she's to be giving me money for this. Uh, so that was kind of my mentality going into it. So no kidding, I pulled up to her house in my 1993 Chevy Lumina. I wore a polyester suit. I'm not joking with you. And uh, <clears throat> I walk into uh, her house, and her 90-year-old father is asleep on the couch. And so, <laughs> and so I kind of stumble through my presentation. It takes about 15, 20 minutes. And the whole time, she's looking at me. I can tell she's completely quiet, but I can tell she's got something to say. Like she's got a question to ask me. So I'm sweating profusely. I had a little bit of hair at the time. It's so, like I was sweating profusely, and uh, at the end of my presentation, she walks over to me. She hands me a towel to wipe off my sweat. <laughs> and she says, how much are you going to cost? And so like in my new rookie, newly trained like, uh, fashion, I tried to practice the art of redirection. Have you ever been in sales? Uh, so I said, you know, you got to understand, like, if you invest in this, it'll last for 30 years, and you won't, you know, spend any more money on a vacuum cleaner. And she cut me off, and she says, boy, how much that darn thing cost? <laughs> and before I can even say to her $2,000, I felt like a tornado had picked me up in the vacuum cleaner and thrown us out the window. <laughs> uh, no, really, I, actually, her, uh, her actual words, I mean, almost actual words were, Ain't no way in heck I'm going to spend $2,000 on a vacuum cleaner when I already got one. And so that was kind of like my first introduction into selling uh, a vacuum cleaner to her. Needless to say, I didn't close the sale. (laughs) And uh, I was pretty morally demolished uh, after that. And it was probably about after my fifth or sixth appointment, I realized I am not a vacuum sales cleaner. Uh, And I went to work for Arby's. So Arby's is a uh, roast beef (laughs) fast food joint in the States. Um, but for a lot of us, our, our connotations of evangelism is some sweaty person trying to sell something to somebody that they don't really want, right? Uh, like that, for a lot of us, that's what evangelism feels like. And for uh, some of us who have, um, you know, we have done the kind of cold call evangelism, like, you know, the person on the airport, you hear those stories and you're like, oh, yeah, I want, I want that to happen to me. Uh, you know that it's not as, like, um, as cool, right? There's a little bit of nerves and there's some uh, kind of some hesitation in that. 
But our dream for Trinity Life, um, it, not, not so much to remove the tension or the nerves around the idea of evangelism, but our dream for our church really is to be a community where you are comfortably and naturally inviting people into experiences with Jesus and the church. Like that's, that's our dream, is that you would feel comfortable and natural in inviting others to experience Jesus, to experience the church, that it would become a part of your uh, lifestyle and not just appointments that you're making uh, specifically. Uh, no politics uh, involved, no manipulation, no emotional, intellectual manipulation, just feeling comfortable and natural in the way that you invite people into Jesus and the church. Uh, and honestly, in a city like Toronto, I think it's almost impossible to do that level of uh, evangelism without admitting our shortcomings as Christians. Uh, there, there needs to be a, a sense in which we own up to some of our own uh, issues. Uh, for instance, um, there are times when we, um, uh, we realize that we're not on the right side of an issue. And it takes maybe 5, 10, 15 years to figure it out. But you realize that, oh, we're really not on the right side of this issue. And as Christians, we have to be able to change our minds when that happens. Um, there are times when we just don't have all the answers and people are struggling in a certain way. Or people just, you know, there's an impossible, like an illogical, you know, a struggle that we're facing. You just have to be able to admit to people, you know what, I believe still. But to be honest with you, I don't, I don't have the answers to those questions. And then there are times when we actually just have to own up to the fact that some of our methods and some of our, you know, styles and programs have actually even ended up hurting people more than they've helped people. And in those instances, uh, the best thing that the church can do is grieve that we've done that and ask for forgiveness. Because I don't think it's possible for us to share our faith in a city like Toronto and not move forward uh, in this way. Um, and so, uh, but also at the same time, like evangelism isn't, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. Um, for a lot of us, it conjures up that picture of the sweaty person uh, selling, uh, trying to sell something. But it's really not as bad as, um, you know, kind of in recent times um, that it's made out to be. I think there's a combination of postmodernity and pluralism that's kind of forced evangelism to kind of this dirty topic. <clears throat> because everybody needs to get along or uh, people who have shared their face in the past had a sense of superiority over other cultures. Um, and so all those things aren't necessarily a product of, you know, they're definitely not a product of Jesus's message, but it's a cultural thing. When you begin to ideas compete, sometimes people, when you're competing, they actually, their, their personalities come out, their brokenness comes out. And that's what people see when Christians are sharing Jesus. Um, and so all, a lot of those things we're, we're having to learn from and we're having to, <clears throat> uh, you know, the, the biblical word is we're having to repent from that. But the reason why I know that evangelism is not a dirty word is because in the tech industry, <clears throat> and we have a few people in the tech industry, um, that the word evangelism is actually reviving back in the workplace. And so companies even appoint chief evangelists in their companies. Anybody have heard this of this phenomenon before, right? And so what happens is that because what's happening in these companies is they realize that marketing sells products, but it's evangelists that build culture. And so they're really realizing after 10, 15, 20 years of being in business, like we're doing well building products, but like what's our culture? Who are we? And so they, they realize that they need evangelists to spread the culture of their company. So you see every institution, whether you call them evangelists or not, they have some evangelists, uh, secular, religious, liberal, conservative, every institution has somebody who functions as 
and evangelists in their culture and in their institution. Uh, and it's kind of neat that the tech industry is embracing the terminology because they realize that it's not about forcing things on the people, but it's about people who are competent in actually sharing the best values of their institution to spread that to others because they think it's worth sharing. Does that make sense? Right, so it's, it actually happens all over the place. Um, and so Toronto, ha the city of Toronto, they have, I think, six value statements that form the core of what, what the uh, uh, city council, the mayor, thinks is the value and the vision of the city. And so everything that they do, they try to put those values out there. They're, in a sense, they're not forcing it onto people, but they are evangelizing. And so everybody does it. Some of you are specifically gifted as evangelists. Uh, and so when we talk about evangelists, we're not just talking about great spokespersons or charismatic personalities or people who can debate. But when we talk about evangelism in the Bible, we're talking about people who have been gifted um, uh, with a little bit more of uh, competency. I don't know if that's even the right word, but uh, there's this level of like awareness and, um, and I, I would say, you know, anointing. Uh, onto you and where you have, you know, maybe you still are nervous and maybe you still struggle with sharing the message of Jesus and how his death and resurrection and return, what does that have to do with life? But for some reason, you just tend to, to, to attract people to hear that message. And for some reason, people end up embracing Jesus because they know you. And some of you guys have that level of, of gifting uh, and it's a part of you. Some of you are growing in that. But some of you, you just know that, okay, I don't know how I do it. You know, honestly, that's why I know it's God, but it, it just happens with me. And to you, I want to say something very important, because you should continue on to be that spokesperson, that person who shares the gospel regularly. But um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, we've got it right up here. Uh, I want to make sure that you see that you're equipped not just for, uh, you know, being a great worker, but it says that uh, Jesus himself, he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip. Can you say with me, equip? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So if you've been gifted in this role, and people have confirmed it, you, you know, continue on in that gift. But there's an added measure in which God has gifted you to do in the church, and that is to equip people. And so I would say you are a coach. That part of your evangelistic gift is to coach others within the body of Christ to become better in their evangelism. And when I say better, here are some of what I mean by better. You, give, you help people to understand better motives for why they should share their faith. So you're instilling inside people, there's better reasons to share. It's not guilt, it's not like legalism, but there are some tremendous reasons why you should share your faith with people. So you're coaching people in that way. You're also helping to coach people to um, share the gospel in a culturally relevant way. So you realize that, hey, you, you got so much passion with you, but you, you turn people off by the time you get to the second sentence. Let me help you with that. Let me, let me help you to, to work through some of those things. Or have you thought about some of these questions? And so the evangelist is also somebody who is good at coaching, right? Uh, oftentimes, if, if you have the gift of evangelism, just like uh, coaches in the NBA or NFL or any other sport, that their role as a coach is a lot better than their role as a player. And you find that from season to season as an evangelist, this is probably going to be you, that you're going to be more effective training five or six people to the work of evangelism than you just working the field. And so, and that may happen in seasons, but I just, I want you to hear something loud and clear before we move forward to the rest of this time, that if you have an inkling towards evangelism, or if you know God's used you in that way, embrace the call that you are also a coach.
okay? Uh, for those of us who want, and you're, if you're like me, and I, I'm not like awesome, great at evangelism from like, you know, the personal uh, uh, standpoint, but if you want higher measures of that, um, the best person to study uh, is the master evangelist himself, and Jesus. He was the, Jesus was the most gifted evangelist of all. Jesus never manipulated anybody in sharing his message. Jesus was never oppressive. He never forced a message on to anyone. Uh, if he was in Toronto today, after having conversations with people, people would walk away. They may not agree with him, but they never felt like he was trying to force anything onto them. He was direct. He was clear, but he was never like forceful in that way. Jesus was never obnoxious when he shared things with people. Again, he was very direct in a lot of times where he ha had some conflict and tension with people, but it wasn't because he was obnoxious. As a matter of fact, he was offensive at times, but it wasn't because he himself was an offensive person. It was because his message offended people. But as a person, he never offended anybody. And so I think he would do well in Toronto. I'm not saying that Toronto would like fall to its knees and like worship Jesus or anything like that. But Jesus would fit our context because all the people who feel oppressed by all the other kinds of evangelists would say, I don't know if I believe everything that he says, but there's something about him that's curious. And I think that's, uh, that's a level of evangelism that we get to learn from Jesus today. Uh, we read Luke 15 earlier, and Jesus, Jesus is in, he's modeling evangelism towards two different groups in these parables. Uh, and the setup of the verse uh, tells us that the parables, are the, the, I'm sorry, the people that he was uh, evangelizing were, number one, the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, and I'm just going to categorize those people generally, and just for today, I'm not making any judgments on anybody, but for today, you guys in, the, in this, this section right here, you're the tax collectors and the sinners. You're the messy people, okay? And for some reason, it says in chapter, uh, in verse one, that but they were drawn, the messy people were drawn to Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you study more of the uh, Gospels, the messier people were, the more they were drawn to Jesus. And in this particular scene, as we read earlier, Jesus is actually having a meal with you guys. He's eating. He's just eating. And then there are those who are the Pharisees and the scribes, and we'll see you guys over the year, kind of your nose are up in the air, and you just know everything. And, uh, but Jesus is also practicing evangelism uh, with that group as well. And these were kind of like the, you know, the really cool kids in school or the ones that just knew a lot. And uh, they, they actually thought Jesus was kind of like a liberal hippie. I mean, really, that was the, the perception of Jesus, uh, that he compromised way too much of what they believed. Uh, and so they were kind of, you know, I would, for lack of a better word, a bit stuck up. Uh, but Jesus, there's something about them that Jesus wanted to connect with as well. First, I want to look at the tax collectors and the sinners. In the first couple of verses, it says that the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Again, Jesus had this draw towards those who had very messy lives. But the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. There's not a lot of detail in here. There's not from these first couple of passages. But again, it's a common theme as you read through the Gospels that very messy people find comfort in being around Jesus. Uh, the fact that Jesus was around them showed, shows us as students of evangelism that Jesus was okay when he was around messes. It didn't, it didn't wig him out. Jesus didn't scoff or he didn't gasp and go, oh, you What? That was never his reaction when he was around these people. Uh, he, he was never overly uh, like shocked by their lifestyles. 
Uh, it didn't mean, again, he, it didn't mean that he agreed with it, but he just never, he was never appalled. And, and so it was easy for him to put his hand in the same bowl as these people. He can share the same cup as they drank. He simply sat with them, and he simply was with messy people. And he was able to do that. And there's something that we can learn from that. We can learn from Jesus that if you're not regularly having meals with people that are different from you, or people that think differently from you, that you should do this. That oftentimes, it's as simple as having meals with people that are most different from you. When I say messy, I'm not saying that, you know, their lives are in turmoil, but, you know, they don't have it together. That's okay. You don't either. Full disclaimer, usually I'm working through some mess. So, I mean, if I can admit that, everybody, just can you admit that you've got mess in your life? Everybody okay admitting that? Okay. All right. So we're all on plan kind of, you know, have me over. Your first messy person in your life for dinner could be me. Just have me over. Practice on me, okay? Uh, But it's really, honestly, Jesus is modeling for us that it's, Sometimes that's simple. You're just, you're putting your hands in the same bowl. You're sharing the same drink with somebody. You're just with them. And that's, honestly, it's a really low bar um, in terms of being with people. Some of you do this very well. Some of you guys have a lot of these relationships. And I would say maybe you're, you've kind of got a natural knack for evangelism. Jesus was intentionally close to people so they can sniff him out to see if he was the real deal. And we need to live our lives in that same way, that we need to be close enough, and it's kind of a disgusting picture, I know, but we need to be close enough that people can sniff us out to see if we're fake or not. And if they get an inkling that maybe we're fake, then maybe we need to introspectively look inside of ourselves. But when they sniff us out, or when they sniff you out, and some, some of you have come to, to faith recently as an adult, you know that a part of your journey was a part of that. You just wanted to know if these people were real, if they were really, truly happy, and they truly believe what, right? I mean, a lot of you who, grow, who became Christians as adults, that's, that's how you process Christians. You just want to know. I don't know if I fully uh, reject what they believe, but I just want to know if they're genuinely happy. You know, what I see on TV, I wonder if that's real. And you got to allow yourself to be close enough to people where they can kind of sniff you. You know, they'll get a wolf of your body odor, and they'll be a little bit offended, oh, you know, but you know, they, see, they can see your mess, and they can see how you handle your mess. And that's a part of the whole process. And when that happens, it releases you to do the speaking part. You see, this happens with Jesus. It released Jesus to do the speaking part in evangelism. He was with them, and so he can actually say things to them. And I'd say this, you know, there, there are a lot of sayings in the church that uh, kind of have made its way you know, uh, uh, through the church. Uh, uh, sayings that are very helpful, but oftentimes kind of maybe taken out of context. Like, have you ever heard the saying, you know, uh, share the gospel and if necessary, uh, use words? Have you, have you heard that before? Um, and so the idea is that, you know, live a lifestyle and you don't really need to talk about Jesus, but if you live your lifestyle, at least the way that people have used that. Uh, live a lifestyle and people will be curious enough. And no, no, the, the, you do need to live a lifestyle that's consistent with Jesus in the Bible. But the end goal of evangelism is to share a message that the coming of Jesus, his death on the cross is the forgiveness of sins. His death, his, over, his resurrection, it means that victory has won, not just for us as Christians, but for the whole entire universe. And his coming means that one day, one day, every injustice, every evil is going to be made right. And so it's learning how to plug that message in a culturally relevant way after you've won some credibility with people. And so Jesus does this masterfully 
in this parable here. I'm taking a lot of creative license um, in retelling the parables just because I, wanna, I want you to feel the earthiness, the accessibility of what Jesus is trying to do to the, uh, to the uh, tax, or tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees. So some creative license. Um, don't think I'm all heretical and stuff like that, but I'm just trying to make it uh, fun and creative. But imagine, uh, so imagine the scene, you know, again, cafeteria scene, right? There's, uh, you know, all the kind of burnouts and all the crazy kids over here, and then there's all the cool kids over here. And Jesus chooses to come and sit down and eat with the, the kind of the burnouts and the crazies over here. And so the cool kids are over there saying, nah, I thought that guy was cool. He's not cool. He's eating with those people over there, okay? So it's kind of that scene that Jesus is now uh, standing up to speak. And it's almost like I, I hear Jesus saying, hey, man, over, you guys over here, uh, you got a sheep? Oh, you got sheep. Okay. Uh, they're hard, aren't they? Taking care of a sheep. You ever, yeah, they're really hard taking care of. There's so much time and investment. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, I wouldn't call them stupid, but I've heard people call them stupid animals. Yeah, yeah, it's really a big struggle. Okay. So if you had a hundred sheep, let's say, let's say one of them overnight got lost. Yeah. That would freak you out. You'd be, you'd be upset. You'd be right because you spent so much time helping that. You wouldn't want a wolf to get to it. You wouldn't want it to fall in a river. You wouldn't want it to drown. You would go after that sheep as if she was your daughter, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would because you would be a good shepherd. I mean, most of you Pharisees, you have your bivocational. You have other jobs. Some of you are shepherds. So Jesus, imagine if that happened to you, right? What would you do when you found your sheep? Let's admit, you're a man, you'd macho cry though, wouldn't you? <laughs> you'd macho cry and eventually ugly cry, and you wouldn't tell anybody, but you love that thing so much because you spent so much time with it, and you see how cute it is, and you spent so much, and so you come home, you throw a party, people wouldn't understand why you're throwing a party for a sheep, but free food, so they're going to come and celebrate with you. But, and so there's like a Pharisee in the back crying because he knows that he loves a sheep that much. So Jesus, you see that guy, he, he gets me. And can you imagine Jesus turning to the tax collectors and sinners and saying, well, that's how God feels about you. And he turns back to them and says, hey, how many of you guys are married or, you know, uh, okay, not married, engaged? Oh, you're engaged. So your fiance, she's got the dowry thing where, you know, she wears the silver coins around her head. Okay, yeah, good. Um, what would happen if she spent one of those coins before your wedding night? What would people say about her? Oh, stingy, irresponsible, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what if she just lost one? What would people say about her? Yeah, still irresponsible and, and, and not, not careful. Okay, so it sounds like to me that if she lost one at night, she would be frantic searching the whole entire house for it, wouldn't she? Who would she be thinking about that whole time while she was looking for the coin? Oh, she'd be thinking about you. So let me get this right. So she lost the coin because that coin represents her faithfulness and her love towards you. So she's going to make sure on her wedding day that she has all 10 coins. So she's thinking about you, right? It's almost as if Jesus then turns to the tax collectors and sinners and says, well, that's how God feels about you. And so the scene is playing out in this kind of fashion where Jesus is using the tax collectors and sinners to help the Pharisees and the scribes, but at the same time, he's trying to help the tax collectors and sinners to see that God has a heart for you way beyond that you could even ever expect for yourself. How do you think the tax collectors and the sinners responded to Jesus, though? How do you think they responded? 
I think there is probably two different kinds of responses. And I think the first response is a normal response. I think when somebody tells a story about me being a lost person, my initial response would be to be offended. Because I think they're thinking in their heads, hey, Jesus, I, I thought we were friends. You know, you're one of those, aren't, aren't you? You're, you're calling us lost. But they know that Jesus was authentic and he was real with them. And so it kind of hurt that, that Jesus, who was their friend, thought that they were lost. So I think a part of that is, you know, when, when you engage with truth, any one of us, it doesn't have to be, you know, religious truth or any kind of truth, but when we engage with truth and when that push, pushes against our particular worldview or bent, there's a bit of like disconnect. And in, in evangelism, that tension is real. It happens that when you share the truth of the Bible with people, there is going to be this initial reaction where it feels uncomfortable. There's some tension there. Don't take it personally. Don't take that personally. There's something in that that people need to, to again, your personality in your delivery should not be offensive. That should not be the offensiveness that people feel. But the clarity and the personalness of your message oftentimes has an effect on people, right? And so I would think that as tax collectors and hearing this, they hear Jesus loves us, God loves us, but man, Jesus thinks we're lost. I mean, we're messy people, but lost, that's a bit harsh. But as you look at Jesus' method over throughout the Gospels, and you, there's, a, there's one uh, instance where he's with the Samaritan woman, and she was a woman who had been married or been with at least five or six different men at a time, and his character, his integrity was so intact that although Jesus was constantly sharing things with her about her life, it wasn't so much that she was offended. It was, as much, it was more so that she felt this level of conviction about her life. And so I think the actual second response, and you see this all throughout uh, the Gospels, that a lot of people, the messy people, give towards Jesus when he's around them, is it, there's a second response than just being offended. It's kind of like they're, they're hearing Jesus speak, and they're like, okay, I don't like the idea of me being lost, but if I had to admit it, I am in a mess right now. I don't like the idea of being lost, but if I had to admit, I am in a mess right now. And if I had to be lost, then it actually is kind of a beautiful idea that if I'm lost, then God is aggressively and passionately pursuing me. Because if I'm going to be lost, I might as well be lost in a situation where God is passionately pursuing me. And I think Jesus told the story of God in reality in a way where people who were messy saw that. I don't know if I believe that, but that's a beautiful story. And I hope that there's levels of truth to that. Because I'm in a situation right now that if that's not true, I have no other hope in my life. And that's just the way that Jesus presented himself in the story of God to people. And you see story after story where people who are in messes and they're Mary Madeline. For goodness sake, this lady was, her life was completely, she went from prostitution to demon possession to, and she became one of the pillars of Jesus' closest discipleship group. There was something about the way Jesus talked about reality and the truth of scripture that people said, I don't know if that's true, but it's beautiful. And I hope it's true because I'm in a mess and I need a hope like that in my life. When you share the message of Jesus and the gospel with people, that's the kind of Jesus that you want to share with those who are in a mess, with those, those who don't have it together. 
they know for, for the most part, if they're humble enough, they know their mess. They don't need us to just like constantly point it out to them. But they need to hear that in the mess, they have a relentless God pursuing them, that he would go to great lengths to, to see them come to know him. And so this is, this is the Jesus that I know in my life. This is the Jesus that I, day after day, that I bring my messes before Jesus. And I hope and pray that the, the truth, the truth and the reality of his, his story that he tells continuously, that that would resolve the issues in my life. And this is, this is the Jesus that I hope and pray that I communicate to people that are quote unquote messy in my life. And so that they can see that, man, yeah, there is hope for their situation. This is the uh, Jesus that we introduce to people, the one that won't gasp. Jesus will not gasp at our friends. Jesus will not gasp at your messes. If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning and you feel like you're that messy person and you just feel like, ah, oh, that's where my life is at, I just don't, I don't know. One thing I want you to, I, I felt like you needed to see it in words, but I wanted you to know that God, God is crazy about you. That God, God is, when, when Jesus calls you lost, he's not being condescending. If Jesus was with you, you would not feel an ounce of manipulation. Uh, Jesus, he would keep your, uh, your intelligence and your, 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 uh, your talents. He would keep all of that intact. There would be no obnoxious ways about him. But when he calls you lost, he's not being condescending. He's trying to help you to understand that, yes, okay, what you feel is not just a feeling. It's a condition. It's a situation. You ever felt like you were with somebody that just knew you? Like you weren't with them for a long time, but you're just like, that person knows me. And there's a sense in which when Jesus is very real in your life that you have that, like he's peering in your soul. Um, so time with the authentic Jesus cuts through the superficiality of having it together. And it allows you to admit the mess that you're in. And it's called sin. Time with him allows you to, to get past the superficiality of seeming like you have to keep it together because Jesus doesn't need you to look like you're keeping it together. He prefers you to actually fall apart in front of him because that's more helpful. And so that helps you to get to the root of the issue. And so when you have the courage enough to say, okay, the mess that I keep calling a mess, it's, it's actually sin in my life. It's actually, you know, the condition that I'm in. Sometimes what we call sin is actually just life, to be honest with you. Life is just that bad. And it's okay to say, I don't know if it's sin or if it's just life, but it's broken. And, the, and it's getting worse. And authentic time with Jesus allows the superficiality to go away where you can get to that place and be with Jesus. And that's the Jesus that we have to present to people, especially those who feel like, who feel like they don't have it together. So four, thing, uh, four, four things really quickly uh, to help us kind of think through. How do you share? Uh, this is kind of highlighting again what I just said. How do you share with people who don't have it together, which generally is all of us, okay? <laughs> I say people who don't have it together, I throw myself in that group. Uh, how do you share the gospel with those people? Number one, do normal things like eat meals with people who are different from you. Very simple. We talked about that. Number two, let people close enough to sniff you out to see if you're the real deal. Okay, just let them be close enough to your life to, to know whether or not you're, you're real or not. Number three, uh, tell stories from the Bible about how God is crazy about them. They can't, 
when you have negative voices constantly attacking you, you can't hear enough stories about how God is crazy about you. God sees you in your brokenness, in your sin, but he's still crazy about you. That's the theme that you have to keep hammering towards them. And number four, and again, I reiterated this over and over again, uh, don't be offensive, but realize that the authentic gospel offends before it helps. The gospel necessarily creates wounds where it intends to heal. And when you speak it authentically, that's the effect. It wounds before it heals. Okay, now let's look at the Pharisees. Let's look at this group over here, the Pharisees and the scribes, the kind of snobbish people over here. Uh, they didn't think they were messy. They didn't think that that was their life. They were educated. They seemed to have it together. They were moral. They were well-respected. They were really, really smart people. It wasn't their sin that made their hard heart against God. It was their goodness that made their heart but their heart hardened against God. And there's something about that that Jesus says, even you guys, the, the well-put people, uh, well-together put people, even you need saving as well. I came across this article uh, in the New York Times this week, and it just fits so well. It was written by David Brooks, and he talks, it's called The Epidemic of Worry. It's about the anxiety that, that rich and educated uh, people face, um, and it's because they have the greatest sense of FOMO. You know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. And so they're educated, they've got everything that they could have, but they have the greatest sense of FOMO. And so uh, David Brooks writes this. He says, educated class anxiety can often be characterized as a feeling overabundant of options with a core of, uh, without a core of convicting purpose. It's worth noting that rich countries are more anxious than poorer ones. According to the World Health Organization, 18.2% of Americans report chronic anxiety while only 3.3% of Nigerians do. And they got a crazy war going on in Nigeria. Today, when you hear affluent people express worry, it's usually related to the fear of missing out and the dizziness of freedom. The affluent often feel besieged by busyness and played, plagued by a daily excess of choices. It's the what, what should I do kind of situation that's causing this anxiety. And at the same time, there is a pervasive cosmic unease. The anxiety that they don't quite understand the meaning of life or have not surrendered to, all, to some all-encompassing commitment that would bring coherence and peace. And what David Brooks is saying, their options and the fact that they have everything, but they're not rooted in anything, just makes them feel anxious about life. And there's a very real group of people out there that live life that way. Now, here's the important thing. When you're trying to share the gospel, when you're trying to do evangelism with this group of people, it's very, 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 very important that you don't say, oh, look at you. You have everything, but you feel so empty inside. It's very, very important that, that that's not how you come off talking to people who struggle in that way. Because when you do that, you actually just affirm all of the obnoxiousness and all of the suspicion that people have about evangelists. You're saying, oh, you're very rich and you're very, you know, uh, educated, but you're so empty inside. Because what happens is when, 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 that, when we do that to people, whether it's true or not, whether it's true or not, they will maintain that their life does have meaning and their life does have purpose to save face. And so if you say, oh, you're really, you're, you're, you have all these things and you're empty, or if we kind of just say that out of the side of our mouth and they hear that, then... It, our, my reaction would be, no, I do have meaning, I do have purpose, and even if I don't, because I would try to save face. 
And certainly what you also don't do is you don't say, oh, you're so closed-minded. Just think there's more, to, there's more things uh, to do in life than to, to be educated and have money. If we say those kinds of things, um, then again, you're appealing to their pride. And so it just it makes it a closed conversation. So, oh, you're closed-minded people. And you know that whole idea of you're closed-minded people? Like, isn't that a funny argument that people use? Because, like, conservative people use it against liberal people, and liberal people use it against conservative people. You're so closed-minded. Well, no, you're so closed-minded, right? And so when Jesus is dealing with these kind of people, he kind of goes like a third different way. When he's dealing with the Pharisees, he's not trying to one-up them, but he's also not trying to win them over in one shot. When Jesus is dealing with the educated and the, the kind of like the well-off people, he invests in a long-term relationship. He just, he's, most of the conversations in the uh, New Testament is Jesus talking with the Pharisees and the scribes. There are times when Jesus is very, very direct and very harsh with the uh, Pharisees and the scribes. But why? Why would Jesus do that with them and not so much with the tax collectors and the, and, and the sinners? Scholars believe that because Jesus was a rabbi and he had disciples, that he came from a tradition either very similar to the Pharisees or either he came from the Pharisaic tradition himself. And so whenever Jesus was being very harsh and direct with the Pharisees and the scribes, it, was, it wasn't because he was doing it far off from a distance. It was because he was an inside guy. Jesus was speaking to his own. And so in some ways, he had incarnated himself into this class so that when he was speaking to them, it didn't sound like an outside voice. He was one of them. Does that make sense? So he had this long-term relationship with the Pharisees, and so he can be direct and harsh, and they just knew. And most of the time when Jesus was talking to them, he's saying, hey, don't you have this standard? Why aren't you living by it yourself? So to the person who's kind of like saying, you know, you're closed-minded, you're closed-minded, Jesus was saying, okay, there's the other mindset that says, uh, well, we're very, we're socialists. We're very progressive people. We're so accepting of people. And, but over time, if that's the way that you believe and that's what you keep saying to yourself, eventually you actually begin becoming elite yourself and you begin cutting people off because they're not socialists and they're not progressive like you. And so Jesus would say to that person the way that he would say to the Pharisees, he would say, hey, you know, you've got a standard that you're actually not living up to yourself. But Jesus did that because he lived with them. He was one of them. He came from their tradition. And so he was able to be harsher to them because he understood them and they knew that he understood them. So here's a thought. This is for us Christians, especially long-standing Christians, that Jesus shows us that it's often the evangelists, that, like those that are most convinced in the group, it's often the evangelists who are the ones who need to be evangelized first. It's often that group that really needs to hear the heart of God's and so that's why the parables Jesus is using to instill into the Pharisees and saying, don't you understand the heart of God towards these people? He's evangelizing the evangelists. And so we have to do that in our city. And when I, because every institution has an evangelist. And so um, there's a couple of things that I think uh, the Pharisees uh, understood from Jesus' parables, and I'm going to run through them real quickly. He challenged their definition of sin. They thought sin was disobeying the law. Jesus also helped them understand a different dimension of sin, and that was relying on your own goodness before God, and that wrecked them. Uh, number two is that they were challenged not by living up to their own standards, and Jesus consistently says, that's a great standard that you have. How are you doing on that? 
And so that's part of his evangelism process, is not to make them feel like necessarily like um, inferior, but saying, okay, that's what you believe, that's, that's very great value that you hold on to, how are you doing with that? And number three, I think they were challenged by Jesus being like them, but Jesus not being like them. He was like them. He came from their tradition. He came from their culture. He understood all the words that they said. He could speak it the same way. He can speak it better than them. But they also realized, but he's not like us. He's different. So I think the Pharisees were very challenged by Jesus in this way. Um, it's amazing because two great Pharisees in the Bible come uh, to believe in Jesus and become Christians. Nicodemus, who helped bury Jesus when Jesus died, and the Apostle Paul, who was a great Pharisee, who was responsible for starting most of the uh, New Testament churches. And so it's amazing what God can do to those who seem hard-hearted at first. God can melt their hearts, and they can become more like Jesus. Real quickly, four things for us. How do you reach the educated and self-sufficient people of our day? That's a big question. Uh, this isn't going to solve the issue for us, but just some things from John Stott to think through. Uh, and uh, these are conditions before faith in Christ must happen. And the first condition is that um, it must be, the message that we share must be intelligible. Are you, show, are you going slow enough that people can process the biblical events that you're sharing with them? You can't just fill it all out at once, so there's a process to it. What you're speaking, is it intelligible to people. When you say the cross, what, what do people envision? When you say resurrection, when you say Noah, what do people envision? Go slow with people. It must be intelligible in order for it to be the next word. It's credible. Uh, is what you're saying, it, are there witnesses? Are, is it, does it line up with what we understand, right? And so there's a bit in which you have to also show them that, okay, this is credible, probably more credible than what you believe uh, because you see, what, this is where your worldview is also failing. And this is where the biblical worldview helps fill in some of those cracks. And so you're helping them over time to see that there is credibility to the message. Thirdly, is that it's also plausible, that this is a plausible message. Like, okay, this isn't just like a spaghetti monster flying over and zapping people. Um, there's some atheist evangelists who, who, who make uh, Christianity look like there's a spaghetti monster that's created the universe. Uh, don't believe those atheist evangelists. Uh, but is it plausible? Like, does this meet real needs? Is it tangible? Could I live in this? You make it plausible. And then eventually it has to become personal. Uh, why does the gospel, why does God demand a personal response? Why does it matter that you either subscribe to it or you don't? Why does it matter that you have to invest in it? Why does it matter that it's an all-in investment? Why? And so it's helping them people process at this point. It took a long time for the Pharisees in the New Testament to get to the point where they were able to say, okay, the story that Jesus told the tax collectors and sinners, that story applies to me too. But it was a long-term investment where he was taking people through these four or five different things that yielded Nicodemus, that yielded the apostle Paul. And if we do this with regularity, with, you know, with a sense of kind of naturalness about it, I would not be shocked if God uses us to raise up future great evangelists from among us. I would not be shocked that God would use us to launch a second generation of evangelists in our city that just does it naturally. I'm not against passing out tracts. I'm not against about preaching on corner streets. Uh, I've never tried that. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Maybe we should try it. Um, but there, there's a sense in which God is teaching us new ways of evangelism, that if we stay faithful 
in doing this, that God might just release a second generation of evangelists that aren't obnoxious, that don't manipulate, that, you know, that don't have the baggage that sometimes Christian evangelists do. All this is to say, and Jesus kind of moves into a third parable that I'm going to conclude our message with. It's a parable that a lot of you guys are very familiar with, uh, especially if you grew up in the church. But it, um, at the end of kind of Jesus's kind of uh, storytelling, um, he tells them a different parable because the reality is that the Pharisees and the tax collectors are just like siblings. They're just your brothers. You're, you're, you're all kind of from the same thing. And so he, he goes on to tell them a story about uh, a father who has two sons. And uh, the, they demand, or the youngest son demands uh, his inheritance. So the father uh, divides his inheritance and he gives it to each one of his sons, the older and the younger. The younger one decides to take his inheritance. He moves far away, spends it on wild living, and then he hits rock bottom. He comes up with a plan. He says, I can't go back to my house and be a son, but I bet you I can go back and be a slave. I'll pay my dad back, and at least I can live like a slave in my dad's house. So he begins returning home. And so that part of the story is, is the tax collectors and the sinners. They're the young brother. And so he begins his way home, and he's surprised and he's shocked that his dad has been waiting for him the whole time. His dad's been waiting for him. He begins to give his speech. You know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me home into your, uh, as a servant. And, and his father says, no, 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 you're my son. So he gives him a robe and a ring and sandals. And he kisses him on the neck, it says. And he kills the biggest cow. And they have a big party. And that's the father's response to the tax collectors and the sinners. He's like, ah, I'm just glad you're home. And so the older brother, who stayed home and took care of the father, heard the party going and grabbed one of his servants and says, you tell my dad to come out here, I need to talk to him right now. Dad comes out and says, son, come in. And he says, I'm not coming in. You got to see that his anger wasn't directed towards his younger brother as much. His anger was directed towards the father. And for some reason, Jesus knew that Pharisees had daddy issues. <laughs> they, not with their earthly father. They knew they had issues with God the father. And he was using the older brother as an illustration that, you know, what happened in the story was the resentment that the older brother had towards the father came out. And the father heard for the first time that I've been working for you to get your pleasure and your approval this whole time. And you can't even acknowledge that. And, and, the, and the father's, his response is stunning. It's stunning what, what he says to the Pharisees what he says to the tax collectors, what he says to the older brother types. He says that, um, son, you were always with me. You've always been with me. There's never been a day that we didn't do this together. All that is mine is yours already. I don't have anything left. He wasted half of it, and you own the other half. I, don't, I gave it to you. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he's found. What the father is saying to the older brother is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and it's what God is saying to a lot of us this morning. He's saying, what happened to your heart? Where's your heart in this? Where's your family heart in this? What? How's your heart and my heart so different, son? I don't, I don't understand. You, we come from the same, you're in my, why is my heart 
over here, and your heart's so different. Everything I have is yours. He's not trying to guilt trip the older brother. He's not trying to uh, get him to behave better. He's just saying, let's get our hearts in alignment. And I think for a lot of us, like uh, we've been in church for a long time type of people, the God is saying to us in a gentle, very straightforward but gentle way, where's your heart? What happened? Why aren't you excited? Why aren't you crying anymore? How did you, you get to this point? And sometimes you have to evangelize the evangelist. You really have to. And I think what Jesus was doing was he was doing that with the Pharisees. He was allowing the Father's heart to shine through, to melt their heart, to win them over to the mission. And man, there are levels of that that I just pray for myself. I just, God, melt my heart. I, there are days when I'm just like, I'm so focused on doing the administrative task. And God is saying, what, where is your heart? It's about people. Our fears about sharing the gospel with people, our fears about sharing the gospel with people are less about rejection. It has more to do with authentic times with the Father. And that's what I want to end our time with. So I want to challenge each and every one of us because you're in a place, you're in a place where either you're a tax collector and a sinner and you have to embrace this idea that Jesus calls you lost, but he doesn't do it in a condescending way. Or you have to embrace the idea that, yeah, you've been in this thing for a long time and you just don't have any more passion and you just feel like it's a job and you're like a Pharisee noted brother. You know a lot. You're pretty well off in life, but you're just doing the thing because it's the routine. And you have to embrace that. Or you have to understand that there's also a third option, which is Jesus. And he just constantly spent time with the Father. And the Father told him, that person, that person, those people over there, meals with him. Stop at that well. Go to that city, that mountain, that tree, the beggar over there, the prostitutes over there, the 10 lepers on that street. He just lived with this level of sensitivity where every day he walked, God gave him an assignment. He always had assignments. It was always people-oriented. You know, Jesus had books to keep. He had mouths to feed. Jesus knows our administrative problems. He knows that you've got kids to feed. He knows that you've got lawns to mow or patches of grass in your apartment to shear with scissors. But when you live with the, when you graduate from embracing that you were lost, and when you're sick and tired of being older brother types, Jesus is saying it's about a daily, authentic time with a father who gives you the assignments. He gives us assignments every day. Sometimes it's as simple as having meals. Sometimes it's about the lepers on Sherburn Street or George Street or four o'clock in the morning on Jarvis and Carlton here. Mary Madeline's walking all over the place. There's something about that where he's just saying, Where's your heart? Because I think if he has our heart, it's easy for him to get our time. It's easy for him to get our, our schedules. But if he doesn't have our heart, then we'll always be stuck in this older brother mentality where we know a lot. But 
what we do over the years is we accumulate bitterness and we just despise the messy people, the very people that Jesus came to save. I want to close our time in prayer. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't mean to be so emotional, but I think God is working on my own heart. I want to pray some things specifically over uh, us this morning. God loves you so much. And that in your lostness, he sent uh, Jesus to search for you and, and to find you, and to, deliver, to deliver you from sin. And he died the death that you should have died. so that you could live the life that he lived. So you can be a child of God. So you can reign with him in his kingdom. The Father says, everything I have, everything I have is yours. Lord, um, <clears throat> remove uh, these things that steal our compassion. God, if I had to admit what I perceive to be my Christian life can feel like a grind sometimes. This feels like a grind and um, Thank you that you look upon those like us who are often older brother types and you still have compassion. That your business isn't to guilt us. It's not to create a strategic plan. It's just to, to perform some heart surgery. So Lord, uh, do that this morning. Remove the things that rob and steal our compassion. The same sunlight that melts wax hardens clay. And your heart is filled with pride this morning. Let it be like wax and not like clay. Authentic times with the Father. Is the, is, is the calibration that you need to be on mission. The church leadership does not have enough strategy for anyone in this room other than authentic times with the Father. He will give you assignments. You can trust Him. And when you obey, you will reach people. And God, we receive that this morning. 
receive that into our life, we agree with you that it's good to live that way. Jesus, you modeled it. You were slow at it. You didn't rush through it. And yet you were very effective in those three years. And God, help us to follow you, the master evangelist. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.